0: All right. Well, uh, so far, it's just been a real blessing to be with you guys. Uh, a few of you, I've been able to talk with. Um, it's really nice. I mean, one one big difference with uh, your church with my church is um, you guys are around my age. Um, my, my church, everyone's like a lot younger. They're kind of mostly 20s and 30s. Uh, so this is it's nice to just uh, be with uh, brothers same age, but even more we have Christ in common right so um just um just good um what i want to do uh in this session is kind of move a little bit more practical and uh having talked about the priority of love want to now talk about the practice of love and so we're going to keep working our way through 1 Corinthians 13 um But, you know, I I think uh, one way you can think about this is that we ought to, if love is the greatest priority of the Christian life, then we ought to be students of love. We ought to be able to be very familiar with what love is so that we can test our own hearts and our lives, whether we are Loving and so before, um, so this was actually a, a series that I did at church. It was actually eight sermons uh, that I compacted into two here. But I just, you know, I I would read through First Corinthians thirteen, and I'd be like, um, just on my own, and I'm like, wait, what does it say again? Like just trying to remember it from memory, and I couldn't. And I, I was just thinking, if this is the most important thing. And, like, I'm a pastor, too, and I can't even remember all the elements of what love is. So What does that say about me, you know? And so if someone were to ask you just very simply, what is love, what answer would you give? I'm, I'm guessing if you're like me, you can kind of give some general ideas or principles. But to really know it so that you can test it in your own heart, that's where we want to be, Right? Um, So I think that's where our passage uh, helps us to, I don't think this is the complete picture of love, but the way I like to describe it, it at least gives us a sieve for love. You know, like a sieve you use in cooking, um, like the filter, right? And you think about it, there's multiple strands of wire that catches the heart of like, you know, the substance, right? That what you want to keep. So these Differing qualities in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7, I see it as a sieve that helps you to capture what love really is. You can kind of filter your life through it to see if you truly are being a loving person, living in love. So um, let's read through verses 4 to 7, and then I'm going to just try to bring out the meaning um, try to make it concrete what it actually looks like uh, in life. So 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, the first thing I want to draw to your attention is just the structure of these words here. And if you'll notice, they mostly come in pairs. So they're kind of like giving you two sides of the same coin in a way, right? So patience and kindness, those actually go together. Envy and boasting goes together. Arrogance and rudeness. And then insisting on its own way, I see that kind of standing on its own, and I'll explain that a little bit more. Irritable, resentful kind of go together. And then you see, obviously, the rejoicing at wrongdoing versus rejoicing in the truth. So the structure of this, you kind of see they kind of come and they're giving you sort of opposites to be able to understand it in more fullness. So that's how I want to uh, take this. We're going to look at these kind of a, at a, a pair at a time. And again, what I want us to do is use this as a sieve, use this as a filter to test your own life, your own heart. Right? To be able to see if... Uh, how you're doing in these categories, okay? So I guess the question we're trying to answer is, what is love, or what does love look like? And the answer we start with in verse 4 is, love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. Now, what does it mean to be patient? Some of you guys are in the health industry, and uh, you have patience, right? The word patient literally means one who is suffering. And that is related to the the Greek word here for patience, which means long-suffering. So to be patient then, this kind of gives it away, it involves suffering. So to be patient means to have a long fuse. The uh, the image that um, I find to be helpful, I'll, you know, sometimes you go through YouTube and there's just random videos that come up, and there was this, there's an engineering channel that came up for me for some reason, and it was about dams. And uh, there was this one dam that broke, I forget where it was, and so I learned about dams. And uh, as it turns out, I think dams are a perfect analogy for what patience is, because what does a dam do? It holds back a large body of water, right? So you can say what, what patience does is it holds back the torrential flow of anger. That's patience. And that's often very difficult. You will feel like you are suffering when you're doing it, right? Um, To use biblical language, and uh, Brian was telling me the college group they're reading the the bruised reed, Um, that's patience right there, right? Patience will not break a bruised reed, will not put out a smoldering wick. I was uh, telling you that I've been um, coaching my son's baseball team, and I love that, but coaching my son is a little different. I don't know why. You know, like, he's the, he's the angel. And I have to be careful talking about him, actually. Uh, (laughs) but I'll just, I'll just say that when we're one-on-one, though, it just gets very challenging, right? But it was a blessing because I realized how impatient I was. I could just easily snap at him, you know? Um, so patience is holding back that anger. On the flip side, is kindness, and where patience is passive, kindness is active. So kindness is actively seeking the good of others. And um, going back to that dam illustration, um, what I uh, what I learned about dams, and I'm I'm, uh, I'm uh, I'm trying to remember the, the term for it. Actually, oh, there it is. There's a, dams are created with a spillway, if you didn't know that. So um, it's not just that, that brick wall that holds back water, right? Because sometimes when the level of the water gets too high, they need a way to release that water out. So every dam, at least modern dams, they have a spillway that's built into it. And what is that? It's a controlled release of water. And so that's kind of how you want to think about kindness. It's a controlled release, but it's not a release of anger. Rather, it's a cool stream of refreshing water. So kindness seeks to alleviate the pain, the worries, the fears of another person. Speaking personally as a husband, it's very easy for me to belittle the fears and worries of my wife. You know, she's a very uh, particular, detailed person. She's a planner, and I'm just go with the flow. So I'm often like, "Hey, just trust God." <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't want to work; out, all things work together, right? And and I'm 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 right in a sense, but I'm not being kind because I'm belittling her fears and her worries, right? Rather than being a, a cool stream of refreshing water. And you know, I the longer I'm married, been married uh 15 years now, no, 16 years now, uh, I realize the truth in the statement, happy wife, happy life. You know, it it really what that is simply saying is be kind to your wives. And that's very biblical, right? And it'll end up being a blessing to you, but that's not the only reason why we do that, right? It's just this is being like Christ, uh, being a cool stream. Of refreshing water. So, uh, kindness and patience are two sides of the same coin. In some ways, I guess you can say patience is having a tough skin and kindness is having a soft heart. And what should guide both of them as we think about the Lord is the motivation for both when we think about the Lord. You think of Romans 2 talks about his kindness what does it do it leads us to repentance right and even in in their that passage he also talks about patience as well um and so Romans chapter 2 verse 4 or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance And patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so this is the thing I've been learning as a father. There were seasons when I would sort of um, just get angry at my kids. And in my mind, it was righteous anger. And I think a lot of times it was because I was justified. They They were sinning in some way. And so I felt justified in my anger. But the longer I meditated on Romans 2 and I just thought about the way that the Lord treats us, his method is not usually through anger. Right? That's, that's usually like kind of like final straw, right? His method is usually one of kindness and patience. And that's the harder route. That you have to play the, the long game to do that, right? But It's basically what our Lord said, treat others the way you would have them treat you. And so in coaching my son, it'd be very easy for me to just, why aren't you listening to me, you know, and just kind of get up on him. But what I've learned to do is I need to actually treat him the way that I want him to treat me. So if I expect him to respect me, then I need to respect him. And even more than that, though, is so I hold back my anger and I give a steady flow of refreshing kindness. And that even comes out in the tone of my voice, right? And that, you know, sometimes, especially if you have young kids, it, you, you sort of forget how young they are, you know, because you live with them all the time and you kind of like treat, like you treat this three-year-old like they're 21, you know, and you expect them to act like a, an adult. At least that's, that's what I've done, you know? And I just kind of, kind of oh, they're, they're a little kid. And I, I need to treat them as such with, uh, with gentle kindness. So, um, So two sides of the same coin looking for that same goal, which is what? It's really, this is a child who needs to know the grace of God to come to Christ. You know as a pastor, there's a thing called like PK syndrome, right? Pastor's kid syndrome where it's like the the kids they grow up and the the pastor's sort of like this godly man in the, the eyes of everyone else, but in home they know what's what who he really is, you know. Um I forgot why I brought that up, but <laughs> just confession time here. <laughs> Um, I guess I, I don't want that to be the case, right, in my home. It should always be, my dad treated me a way that, the way that God treats us, so always with patience and, and kindness. All right. So um, I have to try to watch my time. There's a lot to go through here. But that's the, that's the first, is uh, patience and kindness, um, The second, uh, two qualities that come together is, uh, is envy and boasting. Envy and boasting. The, the word for envy here, it's actually, you would, you could literally translate it as zeal. That would be the literal translation. It's zeal. So zeal can be a good thing, right? Um, if you didn't know the word jealous is actually related to the word zealous. So jealousy is zealousy. It's a zeal. And that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing, right? Like Paul, it says he was jealous for the Lord. That's a good thing. The Lord is jealous for us. That's a good thing. He's zealous for us. But the zeal that is here described as envy, it's a zeal for self. That's what it is. It's a zeal for self that often leads to a sense of insecurity, inadequacy, and the net result is it often will mourn the success of others rather than rejoicing in it. So the success of others makes you feel inadequate rather than celebrating in that. And I think the, the perfect example of, uh, of envy is King Saul. I, uh, King Saul ministers to me a lot in a negative way, um, because you you think about his life. Um, I was talking to someone about imposter syndrome in the break. You know, like musicians, they have this imposter syndrome where, like, you never, no matter how good you get, you never feel like you're worthy to be call yourself a musician. And and, and this was King Saul. He had everything going for him, right? He was the the tallest. He was probably the best looking. He was the most qualified person to be king, and yet he always had this sense of inadequacy. So First Samuel 15, it says he was small in the eyes of men, even though he was the tallest, right? And that inadequacy led him to all kinds of jealousy. When people were praising David, he felt threatened, right? And so he even ended up trying to, to kill uh, David. Um. But what was it? It was really it was, a, it was a zeal for himself that led to that sense of inadequacy. the The flip side of envy is boasting, and uh, if envy is feeling too small, boasting is making yourself too great. So boasting is vaunting yourself, right? It's it's exalting yourself. It's doing things to be noticed by others, um, and that's what Saul did as well, right? Like there was a situation where Jonathan he won a war, he defeated the Philistines. Guess who took the credit? Right, Saul took the credit. Right, he's just kind of always looking. Even in that situation where uh, Samuel confronts Saul in 1 Samuel fifteen, and he says, "The Lord's going to take away your kingdom." And then, and then Saul's like, okay, just, can you come with me and, and like, just make me look good in front of everyone before you leave? Like, his just mind was consumed about looking good in front of people. This is the, this is the boasting. And so what you see that like, both of them, they're driven really by the same problem, kind of different manifestation, same problem. And it's basically pride which is a self-centered frame of mind. And I I think what that pride does is it leads us to kind of play this game. And this is my theory. I think everyone is playing a game called pretend not to be weak. I feel like everyone's playing that game. Some, Some people may be less than others. They're just sort of, They're free to be themselves. But I think everyone has this sort of sense of inadequacy. And so they try to fill it up by either they retreat into depression or they vaunt themselves, trying to make themselves look great. And so for this, you can just kind of ask, um, when others succeed, do you celebrate their successes? When someone else gets promoted, do you celebrate their promotions? Or do you quietly in your heart, are you mourning and grieving or even angry? When you come into a room or you come into a job, are you there to try to make yourself look good and lift yourself up? These are signs of uh, envy and uh, and boasting. And the gospel solution here is basically it's uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. Instead of hiding your weakness, you glory in your weakness. I think this is the, the one thing that um, allows me to survive as a pastor. Um, is 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And in that passage, well, let's look at it real quick. First Corinthians 15, just a couple chapters down. Um, he says in verse 9, or verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So here he seems like this is sort of like the envy, right? This, the sense of inadequacy, right? As he's comparing himself to the other apostles. But then what does he say? Verse 10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So what's the solution to his sense of weakness? It's the grace of God. I am what I am. Thank God. Right. Even though I am the least of the apostle, I'm still an apostle by the grace of God. But then he continues, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Right. And so then now he sounds like he's boasting because he was more productive than the other apostles. But then what does he go to? Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so this is the cure to envy and boasting, whether in your failures or in your successes. You allow the grace of God to set your identity. So I failed, but the grace of God covers it. And I succeeded, but it was only by the grace of God. That's what keeps me afloat in ministry. It sets me free from all the expectations of people and my own failures. So there's envy and boasting. Um, The next two is uh, arrogance and rudeness. And I I would compare this with envy and boasting in this way. Envy and boasting cares too much about what people think. Arrogance and rudeness cares too little. So that's kind of, they're the flip sides uh, of each other. And this is what, if you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's chapter on pride in Mere Christianity, if you haven't, highly recommend that. And it's one of the most insightful reads on pride. The thing he says about pride is there's a form of pride that is concerned about what, others people think, what other people think about them. But the darkest form of pride is when you, could, when you could care less. That's the darkest form of pride. When you don't even care. And it's manifested in arrogance and rudeness. What's arrogance? Arrogance literally means puffed up. And I I take arrogance is like, it's basically uh, seeing yourself larger than you really are. So arrogance manifests itself in my life when I think I know everything and I have nothing to change. And that's often the problem in our arguments, isn't it? Right? Like, I'm right. I'm always right. Um, and this is the, or put it another way, you're never wrong. So arrogance will manifest itself. Um, I guess you can just ask this question. Um, when was the last time you said I was wrong? When was the last time you told your wife, I'm wrong? When's the last time you, told your, uh, you asked for forgiveness? An uh, eye-opening moment for me in ministry was, um, I, was uh, I was teaching through something. I think it was like instruments in the Redeemer's hands we were going through like biblical counseling and stuff. And then I shared this one incident about I was at the Burbank Mall, and then um, I was about to go into a parking spot, and then someone stole my spot. And I was just kind of confessing how that made me so angry. And then uh, someone came up to me after that, and they were like, thank you for sharing that, Pastor. Um, because I think that's the first time I heard you admit your weakness. <laughs> it was like, like I just I thought you were perfect, you know, and that was an eye opening moment for me, because I was like, is that the impression that I'm giving? You know, and I and I realized that it took me a while. God had to chip away at me, but I came to realize I never apologized to my family, like never. I never admitted I was wrong to my family, my kids, my wife. And I was always right. And it was like, in my mind, it was like, no, well, we're just having a discussion. We're trying to figure out a solution, right? But I never came to the the realization that, oh, I'm the problem. (laughs) And just being able to own up to that, that's humility. But I would say more than that, it's just being truthful. And what I was actually in reality was I was arrogant, just puffed up in my own mind, blind like the Pharisees, a log in my own eye, so unable to see uh, and unable to see it, you know. So, when's the last time you said I was wrong? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? These are tests. Um, rudeness is really the expression of not caring what other people think. So, you know, we, we, all, we, we can understand this. Like, you know, if you're, if you're passing gas in front of people and burping, that's the ultimate example of rudeness, right? Because you just don't care. And you do that in other ways too, in more subtle ways. When you, the way you say things, your humor, what you joke about, if you just say whatever you're thinking, that's a form of rudeness. You don't care what other people think. But I think the, the root to all of these attributes here that we've seen, the envy, the boasting, the arrogance, the rudeness, it really comes to this phrase that I think it stands on its own, which it does not insist on its own way. And I think that is really the issue that is at the center of a lot of our conflict and a lot a lack of our love it's just we want to do what we want to do we want it our way we just insist on that and so it's a it's a this the self-centeredness it's but i think it it's related to a self-sufficiency and I think that was kind of a big part, part of my problem. Like, I'm a DIY type of guy. Like, instead of, like, calling someone to fix something, I like to just fix it my, myself, you know? And such is, like, my whole life. I've become very self-sufficient, and that's a form of pride. You guys know who Ernie Johnson is? He's, the, like, the sportscaster. Um, uh, he has an autobiography. He's a Christian, actually. Uh, really good. And he was saying the way that he came to Christ was he was talking with his pastor. His pastor evangelized him. And uh, he asked him this question. He said, who's the provider in your life? And at that time, Ernie Johnson just naturally said, I am. But what he should have said and what he came to realize is, no, God is. right. God is the provider in my life. So a lot of this arrogance a lot of the envy, a lot of the boasting, all of these are manifestations of pride which you can bring it back to perhaps this sense of self-sufficiency. I am the master of my journey. It all depends upon me. Um, rather than recognizing that uh, it's, it's the Lord, And then self-sufficiency often leads to self-righteousness. There's that incident where, um, it's in Luke 7, where um, Jesus comes into a Pharisee's house. And then, uh, basically, he was rude to Jesus. Like, normal custom is... You, you, you have the feet washed and you provide some ointment for the hair and, you know, you, you're hospital to the guests. The Pharisee didn't do any of that. So he treated Jesus very rudely. And then this uh, sinful woman comes and, and wipes Jesus' hair with her tears, right? And, then, and so the Pharisee's like, do you know, like, what kind of woman that is? And what is the point that Jesus make uh, in that situation? He says, he who is forgiven much loves much. I came to your house, you didn't do anything for me. And here's this woman, she's, she's washing my feet with her hair and her tears. You know what that means? She knows how much she's been forgiven. Right? As opposed to you, basically, you're a self-righteous prick. So that's where a lot of our arrogance our boasting our envy comes from. We're self-righteous, right? And it comes back to the the message that, uh, the first one, right? Just never forgetting that God is a consuming fire, yet for some reason, he loves us. How much has he forgiven us? That should squash all the pride, all the arrogance. The next two qualities is uh, not irritable or resentful. Uh, the word irritable literally means sharp. And so the, the image that comes to my mind is like, it's like a thorn or uh, uh, that's like under your skin, right? Like a splinter that's under your skin. That's, so when you're irritable, it's like you're being irritated. Right, Um, and then resentful is literally it's an accounting term, so it's it's keeping a record of wrongs, and I see these going hand in hand. This is this is kind of the way I um, realize it works. One day I was out in my backyard playing basketball with my son, and then uh, we have a lot of like uh, spiders in our backyard because we were up by the river, so there's like spider webs. So I thought there was like a spider web in my hair. So I was like, oh, what is that? And then all of a sudden, like, something pricked me. I realized it was a bee, and then I, like, totally freaked out, and I was, like, screaming like a girl. And then, and then I realized Isaiah, my son, was there, and so like, I, like, I manned up. You know, I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> got stung by a bee. <laughs> you know? um, and so um, I took the stinger out, but um, I don't think I got it all out, right? So it kept irritating me for, like, a week. And so it was like at the end of the week, I was like, oh, I think it's still in there. I got it out. Then it was good, right? I think we often become irritable. We usually don't, we're usually not irritable with strangers, right? Like people we meet the first time because it's a clean slate. We're usually irritable with people we know for a long time. Why? Because we keep a record of wrong, right? We're resentful. We have this memory of how they've treated us, and it's still buried under our skin. And so just the memory of it irritates us, right? Even though they didn't do anything in that moment. It's like, it's the memory of, oh, I know where this is leading, and then we get irritated, right? Um, Jesus, he said in Matthew 18, how many times do you forgive your brother? Not seven times. It's 70 times seven, right? If we truly understood the gospel, we should have all those thorns just cleaned out, right? Just all cleaned out. No record of wrong. Uh, The next two qualities uh, is rejoicing at wrongdoing. And rejoicing in the truth. So as this list goes on, it's sort of getting kind of deeper and deeper into the motivations and thus the solution, right? Um, And here, I think, is where it it really gets to um, what's really needed. Um, It's what we rejoice in. This word rejoice means to delight in. It means what we meditate upon, therefore, right, what we celebrate in our minds, in our hearts. And on initial reading, maybe you don't think you rejoice in wrongdoing, but this is how we rejoice in wrongdoing. It's, it happens in two ways. One is we meditate upon the wrong that someone did to us. And this is tied to the resentfulness, Right? So whatever they did wrong, we have it on replay. And we want to see it from every single angle and we rejoice in it. Oh yeah, I got him there, I got him there, I got him there, I got him there. you building this case, right? To show how this person is wrong in every single angle and you're delighting in that. Because you have your case, you can destroy them. I mean, that's one way that we rejoice in wrongdoing. The other way that we... Rejoice in wrongdoing, though, is just more broadly, is you could just put it, we rejoice in sin. Um, I just learned uh, very recently of another pastor who fell in in his ministry, uh, sexual sin. And, um, you know, that kind of thing, sadly to say, is no longer surprising to me. But, you know, the question is always, like, how does that happen? And I think this is it. It's right here. In the hidden recesses of that person's heart, somewhere, they're rejoicing in wrongdoing. They're celebrating lustful thoughts. Right? No one else can see it. No one else will know. God knows. And they know it in their own heart. Right? Celebrating something that. You would never speak of nor tell any other person, in your church at least, much less your wife. We can, we can uh, cherish that in our own hearts. So this really gets to the, the issue. Why do we have conflict with other people? James 4 tells us very clearly, it's the passions in your own heart. So how can you become a loving person? It's not just external behavior and just trying to be patient and kind, although we we do need to do that. It's also the internal meditation of your heart. Are you secretly rejoicing in wrongdoing. I was just uh, on my drive here. I was just kind of um, somehow like a movie popped into my mind. I was like, oh yeah, I think that'd be a good movie to watch with the kids. And then I, and I thought of the actor who was in that movie, and then I connected it with another movie he was in that's kind of like illicit with some like, you know, illicit scenes. And then all of a sudden I found myself delighting in that scene. These are the moments, right? We rejoice in wrongdoing. And that's maybe a common struggle for men, but also with the anger, right? Just kind of thinking about people who might make us angry. And you build your case against our person, thinking about all the ways that they did you wrong. God tells us, do not rejoice in wrongdoing. What do we do instead? We rejoice with the truth instead of dwelling on that movie and this supposed delightful experience I would have with a woman i ever met, think about the truth of the joy of, of my own wife. As the Proverbs talks about, right? Being satisfied with my own wife. That's the truth that God has blessed me with. Right? The, the, the joy that I can have in my relationship with her far greater than any brief moment with some other woman would. It's just ridiculous. Feed your mind with with the truth. As much as a, a person may have hurt you, think about the truth of how many good memories you've had with that person. See not just the wrong, see all the good in that relationship. But even more, we focus on the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Right? He is the truth. And we're led to that truth through, through the word of God, right? which is the gospel of truth. And so I've been meditating on uh, just the phrase Martin Luther, he has about the external word. He talks about that, the external word. Sometimes we're so drawn into our internal subjective thoughts and feelings, we need to be Come out of that and focus on the external word, the truth, the objective reality that puts us on the solid foundation. That's what we need to meditate on, right? We delight in that. We rejoice in that. And that, it takes work, you know? Much easier when you're tired especially to just kind of, just, you know, kind of, just get your phone and just watch whatever feed, you know, read the news, uh, you know, oh, I just want to relax. That's a lie. What are you filling your mind with? That's not truth. That's worldliness. Fill your mind with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That God is a consuming fire and you deserve his wrath? But he's a God of love who's taken that wrath for you on the cross. So you've been forgiven. You're free. Right? You're free. One part in 1 John I didn't talk about that I was meditating uh, on this morning that I love is perfect love dries off fear. Right? Because there is no judgment. There's no punishment in love. Like this is this is the truth we need to celebrate. Right? Like when... Especially as men, right? We can feel all this pressure to perform in life, right? Because we got to pay the bills. But, and with that, there's like this this pressure to please people. But all that pressure is gone. All that fear is gone. Because Jesus, he 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 removed all the judgment. Right. So there's no more fear. This is the truth, right? We need to meditate on. So just always having the, the scriptures in your mind, the external word in, in your heart, right? Like with, with Psalm 1, when you meditate it on a day and night, you're like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. That's what I want to be. You know, I don't want to be blown back and forth by just kind of the the spurts of my own emotions and desires. I want to be firmly planted in the truth of God's word so that I'm a man who's stable, a man who's continually loving. Right? So love rejoices with the truth. And then we have these... um, Final uh, four qualities here. And um, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And this is kind of interesting because when you go to the end of the chapter, he brings up uh, two of these themes, right? Believes, faith, hopes, all things. And at the end of the chapter, he says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, these three but the greatest of these is love. So, faith, hope, love, the greatest is love, but what verse 7 communicates to us is that while love is the greatest, you cannot truly love without faith and without hope. So faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love, but without faith and hope, you cannot truly love. And you could say in some ways that is the end goal or purpose of our faith and our hope. And the way this works out, you see this also in uh, Colossians 1 where it talks about we love because of the hope that we have, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Let me just read the whole thing. Uh, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.3, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, so faith and love, and then verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I've discovered that the key to love is a good eschatology. You have to have your, your heart rooted in heaven so that the realities of life don't overwhelm you. So how can you love someone who seems so unlovable in the moment? You think about the day when they'll be perfected in Christ, right? Oh, that'd be awesome. Just think, all the people who are thorns in your flesh, (laughs) all the thorns will be removed. And, And my thorns, too. That the hope of the, the perfect community in heaven. That's how we love. You know, uh, the sad reality, I think, this is the way I simplify it, is why does divorce happen? I think divorce happens when the, the couple, whether one or both, when they give up hope. Right? They say that uh, a couple that's fighting is better than a couple that's not talking. Because if you're fighting, at least you still have hope, right? But if you stop talking, it means you've given up hope. But even more for the Christian, our hope is not just in this life. Our hope is in heaven, right? And for you, but also for this person if they're a believer, right? And if they're not a believer, then even more, we want to show them the love of Christ so that they can be in heaven with us. Right. So this is the way that love believes all things. So I think believes all things. It's it's giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's it's um, you know being hopeful. But I think even more, it's rooted in our faith in Christ and the hope that we have in eternal life in Christ. And then that is what enables us to bear all things. And to endure all things. And I guess just to finish up here, verse 7, it reminds me a lot of Romans 5 with those themes of perseverance, faith, and hope. So let's just end there. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5. And I guess just concluding by an exercise of rejoicing in the truth, let's rejoice in the truth of the gospel as is found in Romans 5. Verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let I me mean, just let that soak in, right? We've been justified by faith. We've been declared righteous. Still, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve nothing but his wrath. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So you see faith, we see hope. And we see hope centers on the glory of God, the beatific vision, right? That that moment when we see Christ in the fullness of his glory But then we come back to the present, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So here's the connection, right? We've seen faith, we've seen hope, now endures all things. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Can you remember the day you were saved? I, for me, I remember it. I was, I was in the seventh grade. I was at a retreat. And it was the first time I had tasted of this, this love of God being described here, right? God poured His love into my heart. Everything changed. I was a different person, right? Even at that early age, seventh grade, like I went back to school. My friends noticed, like something—you're different, you know. Yeah, I was different because I had tasted the love of God. And this is this is what we need every single day, right? In the the letters in Revelation, right? It says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Remember your first love, right? So remember that day you were saved and let that continue to grow in your hearts as you rejoice in the truth of the gospel as the Holy Spirit takes that and fills it within you so that we can then rejoice in our sufferings because we know that it leads to endurance Character and the hope of eternal life. So, brothers, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have just uh, shared a little bit of uh, what God has uh, shown me. It's uh, truly a humbling thing, you know, for me to stand in front of you to to uh, in any way claim to have some authority. But the only authority I have is. It's right here in this book, and I hope that, if anything, I've helped point you to the scripture, because this is where all our answers are truly found, especially when it comes to love. So, uh, the Lord bless you, and may he really uh, fill you with his love to his glory. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we are so excited at the thought of heaven, the thought of glory, the thought that you will wipe away every tear, you will remove every thorn of bitterness, you will sanctify every relationship, and we will be in perfect peace with one another because we are in perfect peace with you. Because we can even see the face of our Lord. What a day. What an eternity that will be, O oh God. And so we are so grateful that you've given us that living hope. And we're grateful you've given us your living word. We thank you, you've given us your living spirit within us. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves, we submit ourselves to that. Would you fill us with your love so that it would produce endurance? It would produce patience and kindness. It would produce humility. And we, so that we would just, we would, we would never Have enough, always wanting more and more of the truth, O God. That is our heart's desire until the day we see you in your glory. So thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.